October 25th, 2017. Welcome back to the Island College Basketball Podcast. We've got Matt Norlander with me. And uh, before we get into it, I, I want to thank everybody for the kind words about the recent podcast. ESPN's uh, Jay Billis has been really nice about helping uh, expose our conversations to uh, a new group of people. If you're one of them, uh, welcome and know that we appreciate you being here. And please, um, if you haven't subscribed yet, go over to iTunes uh, when you get a chance and subscribe and rate uh, the Ion College Basketball Podcast. I won't pretend to know exactly how all of that matters, but my understanding is that it matters uh, to some significant degree. So if you could do that, even right now while you're listening, uh, that would be super cool. Just please go subscribe to the Ion College Basketball Podcast, rate it favorably, and if uh, if you do that, we'll we'll owe you for, we'll owe you forever. Uh, anyway, the start of the regular season is now. I did the math on it, Norlander. Just 16 days away. Champions Classic, 20 days away. PK-80, Phil Knight Invitational is just 29 days away. So the games, uh. they're not too far away, thank Lord. And uh, already the sport is dealing with uh, some significant injuries to key players on relevant teams. None bigger uh, than Joel Berry, uh, who has a broken hand at North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina announced that earlier in the week, and the announcement did not say how he broke his hand or where he broke his hand or where it broke his hand. All it said was that he has suffered a broken bone in his right hand and um, is scheduled to miss approximately uh, four weeks. And immediately that sounded fishy to me because, um, I don't know if you know, but North Carolina played Memphis in a scrimmage last Friday night at FedEx Forum. And I did notice in that that Joe Barry only played 21 minutes. So I said, my initial thought was, okay, well, maybe he heard it. Uh, against Memphis, and then Roy just you know pulled him out of the game after 21 minutes. Uh, it turns out I was told that wasn't true. I talked to somebody who was at that scrimmage. They said, no, Joe Barry was fine. He just only played 21 minutes because it's a scrimmage, and Roy was trying to figure out what he had from other guys. He knows what he's got with Joe Barry. So what that told me was um, that the injury happened either Saturday or Sunday. And I, did, I thought North Carolina was probably off on Saturday. So I immediately I say, okay, because I've been through these – press releases before it's like so-and-so tore his ACL while uh, driving to the basket in a workout on Tuesday afternoon right there's usually an explanation in these things there was no explanation so I immediately thought okay he he might have punched somebody or punched something and we find out today because uh, Roy Williams is at ACC media day that Joe Barry uh, is going to miss approximately four weeks with a broken hand because he was playing video games with Theo Pinson and a manager, got frustrated and punched something. Not a, I think it was a wall, maybe, or a door. Yeah. A do- and so uh, here we are, uh, a possible first-team All-American, going to miss the start of the season with a broken hand as the result of a video game. So, Norlander, I ask you, have you ever punched or kicked anything out of frustration, and did it lead to any sort of serious injury? I have, well... I now come to you from my new office here, and in the midst of this move, uh, I have kicked many things out of frustration with basketball, uh, just because life is in chaos here. And because of all that's gone on with all of that, I knew Barry was injured, but when I heard today that he had broken his hand with the video game thing, in my mind, I didn't write the newser, so I I didn't have uh, the information at the forefront of my brain. I thought Barry had like tweaked an ankle or something because normally by the way when you hurt a hand or a wrist it's not 
it's not normally like a month injury. That's a, that's a longer injury typically. Sometimes a broken wrist will mean you're out for the year. Um, so I didn't put two. I thought he was already injured and then did this again and then did, did something else while he was injured. But no, this is the one and only injury. Um, I've had uh, – I'm not a video game player anymore. Uh, certainly in my teen and college years got into it. Uh, I still have my uh, old school Nintendo. Uh, then I, I'm definitely going to hook up here in my office. There's just no doubt about that. I'm I'm going to have a video game renaissance, old school style. But uh, it's been a good long while since I've actually gotten any sort of, of passionate response, any sort of heated interaction with the video game. My younger brothers are terrible at this, by the way, in terms of keeping their composure. Uh, broken controllers over the years, just, you know, uh, busted up GameCube, all of that stuff. For Barry, I'll say this. I was a little surprised that Roy... Uh, said publicly what happened. I don't have an issue with it. I mean, it, it broke the way it broke. Um, it's going to certainly lead to some funny and interesting signs and visiting arenas for the rest of the season. Um, and then the clear impact here is that y- you mentioned this in passing to start the podcast, Parish. Barry is... I think there is a case that Barry is a top three player of value in college basketball now we're in the midst of building our top 101 list for players and that's going to be released most likely next week uh but barry's already on our list and he's not in our top five players but being a top five player in college basketball is different than being a top five player of value because if you take barry off of north carolina i don't think that's a top 25 team i might even suggest it's not close to a top 25 team whereas barry in the lineup they have a they have a case to be borderline top 10, if not top 10, because he is that valuable as a point guard. So if he's only going to be out for approximately a month, maybe he returns. You mentioned PK, he's 29 days out. Maybe he's better just in time for that. He maybe doesn't play that first game. They either play Portland or Portland State. I can't remember which one it is. Maybe he just sits that one, might come back in the middle of the tournament. They're going to certainly need him. This undeniably has impact on Carolina to start the season. It also means that... Roy, although he doesn't want this, maybe gets to evaluate and judge his guys without Barry. It helps him in the long term. But they'll be interesting to see in those first two weeks, GP, because they could be uh, a shell of what they actually are. And it's probably going to be hard to truly evaluate from afar how good North Carolina is or isn't without Barry in the lineup. So I had somebody ask me earlier today, like, um, how badly is North Carolina going to miss Joel Barry? And the answer is obviously, well, it depends on how long he's out. If it's strictly four weeks from the date of the announcement, that would be November 20th. That's when they play at Stanford. Now, Stanford's not going to be bad. And so if, if, you know, if you have him back for that, the first two games should be games that you win no matter what. Uh, with Joel Berry playing point guard, with me playing point guard, shouldn't really matter. Um, you're North Carolina, and, and the teams you're playing aren't. But at Stanford, that's, that's one where you could get caught. And uh, so you need Joel Berry back for that. And then after that, of course, they've got the PK-80 Phil Knight Invitational where maybe they win their first game without Joel Berry. I think they probably do. Maybe they win their second game without Joel Berry. I believe it would be against either Oklahoma or Arkansas. But the third game, if the third game is the championship game, uh, it'd likely be against Michigan State. And you ain't beating, North, you ain't beating Michigan State without Joel Berry. You might not beat them with him, but you ain't beating them without him. And so... Uh, how badly will this impact North Carolina season? It, it depends, I think, quite literally on when Joel Berry is back. If it's really four weeks, should be fine, no big deal. If it's a six-week deal, five-and-a-half-week deal, it could absolutely cost them uh, a couple of losses. But to the a point I made earlier, 
Uh, like North Carolina is just one of many teams dealing with a significant injury already. Uh, I did the math on it the other day, and I believe what I came up with is that five preseason top 15 teams are going to start the season without a significant player. Uh, tell me if I'm missing anybody, but Arizona's going to be without Raleigh Hawkins at the beginning of this season. Wichita State's going to be without Marcus McDuffie at the beginning of this season. Kentucky's going to be without Jared Vanderbilt at the beginning of this season. Florida's going to be without uh, Johnny Bono at the beginning of this season. And now North Carolina's going to be without Joel Berry at the beginning of the season. Is that uncommon? I mean, I, I don't know. It feels uncommon, if only because I don't re remember recognizing that any other time. And that's not to mention Louisville, for obviously different reasons, is going to be without Brian Bowen, if not for the start of the season. I mean, it, definitely for the start of the season and maybe for the entire deal. So really, you got six top 15 teams that are starting shorthanded um, for various reasons, which feels um, feels yeah. rare. Maybe not completely rare, but uh, not normal. Yeah, every season I think there are usually one or two teams in the top 30 that might be dealing with uh, with an injury issue or an eligibility issue. And speaking of eligibility issues, you know, one thing you know to kind of clue listeners in, although you're probably plenty aware of this and tracking it yourself, you know, we're uncertain of how many other teams that are ranked in the preseason could wind up uh, not having players eligible because teams are doing internal reviews and it might be in their best interest to uh, to withhold those uh, eligibility concerns until right before the start of the season so we might not be out of that yet we'll see uh, in terms of injuries it does seem higher than normal still got a couple weeks of practice to go here hopefully we dodge any more uh, serious injuries but yeah I think that that qualifies Parrish as we you know take in this preseason and and look toward November uh, it's it's a relatively big storyline. Um, maybe a little bit short of a trend, or maybe it is a trend, just having so many teams that have Sweet 16, Elite 8, Final 4 expectations dealing with injuries right now. I think the team right now that is uh, relatively hampered, um, Arizona certainly, because I think Raleigh Hawkins is going to be awesome, but Landry Shamit's supposed to come back in time for the start of the season for Wichita State. They also don't have Marcus McDuffie. He's going to be out until mid-December. He's... I think he's the second best player on that team, although that starting five all around is, is pretty awesome. In fact, you know, speaking of our top 101, Shamit's obviously going to be a top 20 type player. Uh, but between McDuffie, Shaq Morris, Zach Brown, honestly, probably a top 10 defender. We're not going to get all four of those guys into our top 100, but we got to get two. Probably probably three guys got to be on that top 100 list, GP, if we think Wichita State is truly a top five team in college basketball, which is where we have them ranked heading into the season. Hopefully they all get better. I think you're uh, you're accurate in mentioning though that uh, it is unusual. Uh, Barry in particular though, let's see how quick he can come back. How he he's on the mend, and he by the way over the past like I don't know seven eight years, it always seems like in most years Roy Williams' point guard situation in, in North Carolina has an injury. He's always there's almost always every season different parts of the body, but uh, you know start middle or end, it, it seems the most important position there. Uh, at what's been one of the best point guard universities ever um, has been dealing with some issues there. So uh, it was preventable. <laughs> I also want to know what game he was playing. Are right. we talking Call of Duty 2K18? It's got to be 2K18. I would bet lots of money it's 2K18. Yeah, that's that's probably the uh, the game of choice among college basketball players. But uh, And if so, you know, I want to know what team he was playing. And by the way, was he playing against Pinson? Was he playing against the team manager? Because he was playing, quote, with – Pinson and the manager. So is, is he is he ticked off that uh, that it wasn't even that he lost to a teammate, but is the team manager trash talking? And who is this team manager? That's the next part part of this investigative uh, operation here. I need the beat writers in Carolina to tell me much more about this because 
it, it does suck right now in the moment, and I'm sure you know fans are like randomly annoyed. And by the way, all your favorite players at your favorite schools, obviously they play video games constantly, so like whatever. Like yeah, it's a stupid injury, but I'm sure there's I'm sure there's been other players who have like legitimately like played games with bruised hands because they got pissed off and punched the wall after losing a game like that. But uh, I want to know I want to know the team manager, and I want to know if this is already fractured the situation in North Carolina. Well, um, you know, and I don't mind Roy being transparent with what the issue was. Some people on Twitter have been like, I think I saw our, our, our colleague Reeve Forgrave say, oh, Roy, you should have kept that to yourself. Like, first off, I think Roy's just so relieved that this NCAA stuff's behind him. Like, he didn't care about anything anymore. Like, he's, he's just ready. He's like, like somebody asked, what happened with Joe Barry? He's happy to tell you. Like, well, I got nothing to hide, man. NCAA stuff's behind us. We, we'll talk about any of that. So, I think probably Roy's coming at it from that perspective. But also, um, you know, there, there's probably a teaching moment there. Like, hey, listen, hey, I'm not going to cover for you. You want to be stupid and jeopardize our team by punching a door over a video game? Well, when I'm asked about it, I'm not going to make up some lie for you, and I'm not going to be vague for you. Uh, people are going to ask me what happened. I'm going to tell them what happened. You punched the door because you were mad about a video game, and now we got to go maybe play Stanford without you. Now we got to go maybe play Oklahoma, Arkansas without you. Now we got to maybe go – play uh michigan state without you and i forget who they have in the big 10 acc challenge but it's like a real game as well so and it comes up after that so listen you're supposed to you're a senior you're a leader you've just jeopardized our team over something stupid when people ask i'm going to tell them and if that embarrasses you well then maybe you'll learn a lesson from it so i don't mind really talking about it at all um i think it's probably um probably the right way to handle uh to handle that situation uh, let's move on. Uh, Jim Laranega held a press conference earlier this week where the Miami coach um, acknowledged that he has, quote, coach three in the federal documents that were released uh, last month and has really uh, rocked uh, the, the world of college basketball. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean anything, um, but um, it does mean that he was being discussed uh, by everybody calls him an agent wasn't really an agent he's just kind of a scumbag <laughs> like pretending to be an agent christian dawkins and um and uh the guy who ran the uh, grassroots program uh out of florida where nasir little um was was the topic of conversation uh, what christian dawkins is caught on a wiretap saying is that coach l uh, you know, knows about everything and everything was that they were in the process of orchestrating a $150,000 payment to get Little to, to commit to Miami. And so I guess I would say this. Um, I don't believe, first off, let me say this. I don't vouch for anybody in college basketball. I've made that clear. I hate it when people say, ooh, so-and-so does it the right way. There are guys I believe do it the right way. I've also been surprised by guys before. I've been burned by guys before. So I vouch for nobody. You will never, ever, ever hear me say or read me right that isn't it great so-and-so does things the right way? Or isn't it wonderful that that person's running a clean program? Isn't it terrific you watch that guy get a commitment from a top 15 prospect? It proves that it can be done the, the right way. I just don't get involved in those conversations. I don't know. But I will say this, and I think you would agree, it doesn't line up with Jim Laranega's reputation at all. Is that fair? It is fair. It does not line up. In fact, I would say Laranega is uh, defensive to a fault over his reputation as a clean coach, and I'm sure that this is, if in fact uh, he is completely uh, innocent in this and truly didn't know anything, 
I'm sure this has been uh, something that has bothered him relentlessly every minute of every day since the story broke. I had somebody who knows Jim well say, like, the idea that Jim would be aware of a six-figure payment to a prospect, like, just would, like, would not make any sense because he couldn't even, like, understand the that somebody would get six figures to go play basketball somewhere. Like, he just doesn't live in that world. Now, I don't know if that was somebody being naive or what, but I guess I'll just leave it at that. What Christian Dawkins is caught on a wiretap saying about Coach uh, Laranega at Miami doesn't jibe with the reputation that Jim has at Miami, that Jim has within the profession, for, for whatever that's worth. Um, it seems clear that Miami's going to stand by him. It seems clear that his bosses believe him. And I don't think simply Christian Dawkins getting caught saying that on a wiretap is going to lead to anything as it relates to Jim Laranega. Uh, you know, because Dawkins has been, like, he's been a liar before. It's, it's documented. So it's possible he was just trying to create um, a, 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 a perception in these conversations that he was having. I, again, I don't know. But I don't think Christian Dawkins in and of himself is going to be able to bring down Jim Laranega. Um, what will be interesting, though, is that Jim Gatto, the Adidas executive, um, is you know facing federal prison right now. I, I assume that he is either talking already or he's going to talk and cooperate. And if Jim Gatto corroborates what Christian Dawkins said, yeah, that could be a problem for Laranega. But short of that, I don't think just the word of Christian Dawkins, that Coach L knows everything, I don't think that's going to be enough to bring down Jim Laranega. Do you? I don't think it will be. Um, I think Laranega has complete confidence. He, I think he said this, and also through his lawyer, who has made statements in previous weeks. Uh, not only Laranega, but obviously, when we look at the scope of this FBI story, this investigation, um, every school that has been named or tied to it, it's it's the assistants that obviously do the dirty work. Um, I think Laranega has extreme confidence in the word of his assistants because tied to what I just mentioned before about Laranega and how much he cares about his reputation as a clean coach this is not information I have you know gotten on background this is purely my speculation and my opinion my opinion is that if Laranega truly believed that one of his assistants was doing something that was breaking federal law, NCAA rules could get it could you know severely damage his reputation. Uh, I believe that assistant, at the absolute minimum, would be on leave right now. But those assistants are still employed; they're still doing their jobs; they're still you know going to work every single day. Um, so, in absence of any sort of discipline being put on those assistants, I think Miami has a lot of confidence that it will be fully cleared when this is all done. And that is also supported by the fact that Nasir Little, who, by the way, is committed to Carolina, uh, his family has been uh, aggressively outspoken in the fact that, uh, one, Sean Miller, uh, you know, Arizona was tied up in this whole conversation as well. Uh, Sean Miller never asked or suggested uh, that, you know, money should be uh, taken or even put on the table. Like the fact that Nas like Nasir Little's parents say, we never asked for money. We never wanted money. You can check anything with us. 
that is not how we do it. Nasir Little is apparently like a, a, just a, tre- a tremendous kid. His reputation in general, uh, you know. Um, so the fact that this one school, Miami, was caught up in this case because of this one recruit, Little, and his parents, I think, more than anyone else's uh, parents and any sort of recruit that's been you know mentioned or, or brought up in this uh, federal complaint here, also probably benefits Miami. But we are not out of the woods with this yet, and we there are still plenty of information we don't know. But I think it does say a lot about Laranega, what you have and have not seen happen at that school yet. And then I just want to, you know, maybe wrap this wrap this up here, send send it back to you before we move on. Um, we we you know we have we have well hit past the the month mark here with this story here, and we we haven't gotten more charges yet. Um, to be honest, this is the way that I thought it was going to go. We still could get more, and trust me, uh, I you know I wake up every day wondering. Okay, is there going to be another element to the story that comes? And I think, like, if we have nothing between now and, and February, Parish, I'm still going to wonder what else could come. Um, but it's, I, I do think that if there is anything else significant in the case that the FBI has, and I mean significant, um, I would think that we, we would have heard it by now. That doesn't mean, like, okay, maybe there are three or four other schools that might have an assistant or a former assistant or a head coach that could get pinched here. Uh, but I, I don't, I do not believe we are going to have another day that comes in that's tied to this case where the FBI announces it is charging another four schools, five schools. I, I think if that was coming, it would have happened by now, or they would have had the information. You know, I, I'm under the presumption that these men that have been charged have already been, uh, you know, talked to at this point. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Do you disagree? I I don't know that anything's imminent. I'll be shocked if more schools aren't brought into this at some point, if more arrests aren't made. I agree, but the point I'm making is I don't think we're going to have another day that's close to the one that we had in September, that's all. Like, will we ever get 10 more arrests in one day? Maybe not, but I do think yeah. I do think it's possible 10 more arrests are made at some point. More programs are brought into this. I think the next thing we're going to see, the next big development, is because we're just, we're, you know, we're not far from the start of the season now. I think you're going to see schools literally on the day of their first game announce that player X is being held out of competition uh, indefinitely. And you'll be able to know that that's because of possible problems um, connected to this FBI investigation. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe what the federal documents show is that there are at least conversations where it is implied that a player or multiple players at Auburn, student athletes right now, have accepted impermissible benefits, that a player or players at USC have accepted impermissible benefits, that a player or players at Arizona, current players, have accepted impermissible benefits. And so I'll be shocked if Arizona, USC, and Auburn, all three, start the season with what we believe to be their full rosters right now completely available to them. I, 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 usually the way that works is, and and I, I hesitate to say usually the way it works because like we're in some unusual situations here. So it, you, what usually happens might not apply, but usually the way it works is if there are possible problems, you, um, you have the school declare players ineligible, and then apply for reinstatement, and that could be going on right now. You know, um, which would be a bit of a, a blessing for these schools that 
the FBI stuff broke when it broke because if it breaks right in the middle of the season, you can declare somebody ineligible, then apply for reinstatement. But the game, the schedule's still playing out. Like you, you could miss time just because it's a process. Um, theoretically, let's just focus on Auburn. If Auburn has been able to identify the player or players that um, Chuck Person allegedly was providing impermissible benefits to, they could have already declared certain players ineligible, be applying for reinstatement right now and trying to get all that sorted out. Uh, but I, I'll be shocked if, uh, I guess it'll be what, two Fridays from now? Yeah. I'll be shocked if, if on that Friday or that Saturday, whenever these teams are playing, if if Auburn has its complete roster available, if USC has its complete roster available, if Arizona has its complete roster available, based on nothing more than what is actually in those federal documents. And then the arrest, they'll come when they come, you know? I, I don't know that the feds work on any sort of timetable. Um, like, it, it could really be, you know, on a big Monday uh, where Kansas is getting ready to play um, Oklahoma at Allen Fieldhouse, and we find out that, uh, you know, there's something there, you know, that they found uh, that they talked to Adidas executives and they found out that there was something um, similar happening that, 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 that Adidas worked to help Kansas get a player once upon a time. Uh, I, I've said this before, and I, I, let me be clear, I'm not trying to single out Kansas. I, I think any big Nike school, any big Adidas school, and any big Under Armour school are at least – in a position where they could possibly have problems connected to this federal investigation, which is why I, th- I think it's worth pointing out, you know, Bill Self has been asked about this. John Calipari has been asked about this. A whole bunch of coaches around the country have been asked about this. And I don't think I've heard any of them or, or I've heard very few come out and say, the guys who are connected to big, big schools come out and say, my fans have nothing to worry about because we've never benefited from shoe company influence. John Calipari didn't say that. No, what? Yeah, what? The, yeah, Self didn't say that. Self was asked at Big Twelve Media Day this week if the FBI has issued any subpoenas uh, to Kansas. He said, not that he's aware of, and he he would be he would think that he would be aware of that kind of thing. Uh, so that's I I'll I'll admit it, that's surprising to me. I would think that there's got to be something there uh, with the FBI just because it's a big it's a it's a big school as is. And what he said, GP, and what Calipari said, they've they've explained how. <laughs> They've explained how the environment in college basketball recruiting works as it ties to, uh, I guess, pun intended, the shoe companies there and third-party influences. And with this being the reality that it is, um, inevitabilities are going to crop up uh, when you have opportunities, if you want to say, uh, with certain prospects and shoe companies. And it's, it's a competitive market. So you're right. They have not. Uh, they have not said those kind of words. They have not put out any sort of definitive language or definitive statements. Yeah, like with, like with John Calipari, Jerry Tipton, in, in a pretty funny back and forth at Kentucky's Media Day, Jerry Tipton, longtime beat writer, um, essentially asked John if there's, you know, if he could put his fans' uh, nerves at ease. And the, the obvious answer to that is, is to say, of course I can put my fans, uh, our fans' nerves at ease. We have nothing to worry about, and here's why. Um, we've never benefited from shoe company influence. Louisville benefited from shoe company influence. That's what they're called doing. We've never benefited from Nike whatsoever. So the fact that Nike documents have been subpoenaed doesn't matter to us because we've, we've never got a prospect to enroll at our school uh, at the urging or at the payment of, of Nike. He didn't say that. He said a lot of other stuff, but he didn't say that. And it doesn't mean 
that, ooh, Kentucky's next. I just noticed that he didn't say that. Bill didn't say that either. Um, and that's why I, 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 if I were a fan of any school that is considered a, quote, big Nike school or, or quote, big Adidas school or, quote, big Under Armour school, I would be a little nervous. And I, I wouldn't stop being a little nervous until this was all all over. And who knows when, who knows when that'll be. Right. Speaking of Kansas, uh, they played a, an exhibition against Missouri um, what, over the weekend there. And like so many other schools, there's been a lot of exhibition games that have been held uh, to raise money, um, primarily for a lot of hurricane relief with Puerto Rico and, and you know, down in, in Houston and, uh, and, and other causes as well. But this is something that has, has really taken, uh, taken trend here. Um, there are a couple things I wanted to talk to you about with this GP. Uh, Kansas, Missouri in general, um, and then the idea that there could be that college basketball could have some sort of annual mid to late October exhibition tour across the country where you have, you know, geographically minded teams that might or might not be playing each other in the non-conference already, uh, aligning themselves to play each other because it's it's an easy and effective way to, to make money for really good causes. And by the way, it also gives coaches you know who have these closed scrimmages all the time every day there are there are programs that always play behind closed doors these closed scrimmages and in fact some schools opened up their closed scrimmages in effect to be uh for public consumption there um uh, sam mellinger wrote a column for the kansas city star this week that said you know you know bowlsby the uh, the big 12 commissioner said you know I don't know if there's necessarily any sort of movement for this to be an annual thing. And he was like, listen, for college basketball, this is a no brainer. Like you should absolutely be doing this. My thought is, yes, you should be doing it. But um, and this is all kind of jumbled into one big bowl of soup here. But why not also have like the exhibition thing is great. But if Kansas and Missouri and, and self quotes, I got to be honest, we're frustrating as hell. Like. You know, we're going to do what's right for us, not what's right for Missouri. I get that line of thinking and all that stuff. Uh, but clear, like, if you follow this even from afar, like, it showed just how important that rivalry is. Yes, to Kansas fans and obviously to Missouri fans. And it's just good for the game to have those two programs who are no longer Big 12 foes playing each other. I'm wondering if you could even... If Kansas and Missouri are only going to play because it's going to be to, to benefit uh, charitable causes and whatever, like... The NCAA's uh, membership and and the NABC, I think they should strongly look at having one regular season game allotted, whether it's the first, second, or third game in November. Like, okay, that game you're going to play every single year is going to go toward charitable causes. And I don't see why, you know, you couldn't specifically do that. I understand exhibition regular season is, is very different from a money-making uh, position and, and television and all that. But I think... Almost a little bit by accident, college basketball has tapped into something that football can't really do because it's it's football. There's only so many games. You're already concerned about player health. Basketball, this is just one more game. There are 351 schools. So many of them are so close together. The big programs can easily afford to hop on a plane and take an hour and a half ride if need be. But I think, one, Kansas, Missouri – they really should be playing every year. There's no excuse not for it not to happen. Kansas already isn't going to play Wichita State, which we should be seeing. And then it would be terrific if all the the great stuff that has happened here in the midst of the past week, 
if you could keep that momentum and build it toward next season, the year after, and have this be a part of the college basketball schedule annually? What are your thoughts? Well, first, uh, I would say uh, I don't think you can take these money-making events like for charity and turn them into regular season games because uh, at some point the athletic directors, they, they're not – they're interested in raising money, but not at their own expense. And so if you're going to play Kansas, if you're Kansas, you're going to play Missouri in the regular season, you ain't making that a part of a charity deal where all that money goes to the Red Cross. Um, like that that would be a a, um, a a prominent game on your regular season schedule. That's going to be part of your season ticket package, not a part of something uh, as it relates to charity. So I, I think that fundamentally that that's kind of flawed. I'm happy to let them have an extra exhibition every preseason to raise money for the charity of their choice. I mean, geez, we live in a world now where clearly there's going to be enough tragedies that where people need help. You know, it'll be fires, it'll be floods, it'll be uh, mass shootings. Uh, there's always people in the United States of America and other places that could use a, use charity. And so uh, if the NCAA wanted to allow every college basketball program in the country to, to play an exhibition, for charity every preseason i'm happy for that sign me up for that it's a good thing that and i can't think of a single downside of it but trying to incorporate that into the regular season and and separate a game from a season ticket package i just don't know that that works because if unless they allocate unless literally sorry to interrupt you the yeah, only yeah. way is if like they literally allow for one more regular season to be played like sanctioned like you can only play so many as no right. yeah I, I hear you but I, my point is you, they say okay we're going to give you one more game per regular season and that is your charity game. Well, then if you're Kansas, you say, okay, well, we're going to make South Dakota State our charity I game. Know. I, know. <laughs> yeah. I, I hear you. I, I'm not saying it's without its flaws. Just the Missouri-Kansas thing really got right. my wheel. No, okay, no. You and I are on the same page there. And, and like, listen, let's just focus on the facts. They sold out Sprint Center on a Sunday afternoon, an NFL Sunday, where, like, you know, people in – the Chiefs are awesome, by the way. Yeah. Uh, were the Chiefs playing? I don't even know if the Chiefs were playing. They, they were not because they played on Thursday, but still. Uh, yeah, still. It's an NFL Sunday in in October, and you got roughly 19,000 people to, to to file inside the Sprint Center, pay real money out of their pocket. It ain't part of some season ticket package they had already paid for. So, like, the tickets are here, so might as well go. They know. Like, people had to say, I want to go to that uh, at 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. They got 19,000 people. They had folks paying $40 to watch it on pay-per-view. They turned it into like a Floyd Mayweather deal. All right? So, <laughs> yeah. so there's clearly an audience for this. And I have forever believed, and I, 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 don't, you know, I, I don't even mean it strictly as it relates to Kansas, Missouri, although I think that's a great and extreme example. Um, regional rivalries are awesome, and they're not to be shunned. Uh, Tennessee Memphis should play every year. Washington Gonzaga should play every year. Maryland Georgetown should play every year. Kansas Missouri should play every year. And here's why. Because the fans care about those games. I'll just talk specifically about Memphis and Tennessee because I'm familiar with that one most. Um, the reason Memphis, Tennessee is fun in basketball and the reason, say, Memphis and Ole Miss is fun in football isn't necessarily because two programs are great or one's great and the other one's down or vice versa or anything. It's because Memphis fans work with Tennessee fans. Memphis fans live next door to Tennessee fans. And so you, that matters to you. you, get, you you're going to go watch a school play, your school, and you're familiar with that school. You've been raised around that school. You've got friends who went to that school. It's fun to talk 
S to your friends. Like, I'm married to an Ole Miss grad. Now, she doesn't care about football or basketball or anything else. But if she did, that would be kind of neat for us. I'm a Memphis grad. She's an Ole Miss grad. My neighbors to my left are Ole Miss grads. My neighbors to my right are Mississippi straight grads. The people down the street from them are Tennessee grads. These people all live amongst each other. And that's not unique to Memphis and Tennessee. It's the same thing with Maryland and Gonzaga. It's the same thing with um, Missouri and Kansas. It's the same thing with uh, – uh, did I say Maryland and Gonzaga? I meant Maryland and Georgetown, Gonzaga and Washington. Yeah. And, let you go. Yeah. In regional matchups, the fans like have a real disdain for each other for whatever reason. You know, I can remember bumper stickers from when I was a kid. Like, uh, and I think this probably goes on all over the country. Let's just focus on what it might have been at Kansas. You know, my favorite team is Kansas and whoever's playing Missouri. You know, my favorite team's Kentucky and whoever's playing Louisville. And so often I hear coaches say, well, we can't play the regional games because, you know, we want to play a true national schedule. Well, I looked at Kansas' schedule. They've got home-and-homes that they're completing right now with Nebraska and Stanford. Why? Who cares about those games? Yeah, And Nebraska's a twist of the knife because that's also a former Big 12 foe. Yeah, but who cares about Kansas-Nebraska in basketball? Right. Right. So, you know, listen, Bill is a Hall of Fame coach and can put together literally whatever schedule he wants, and his fan base is going to sell it out in Philadelphia Fort. And so – Obviously, up to him. I acknowledge that. I'm not trying to tell anybody how to do their job. I'm just saying, if you're trying to maximize the enjoyment of your own fan base, playing a regional rivalry is a positive. And don't tell me there's not room for it, because you could easily trade your home-and-home with Nebraska and play Missouri. Trade your home-and-home with Stanford and play Missouri. And um, I understand that the argument from the Kansas side is, yo, we used to play them every year when they were in our league. But they wanted to leave our league and and destabilize our league um, to go to the SEC. They put our league at real risk when they left. There wasn't always certain that we were going to still have the Big 12 as we have the Big 12 right now. And some of that is is attributed to Missouri's decision to leave the Big 12. So F them, we never play in them again. Like, I get that. And I'm actually like, I can sort of understand that perspective. But when you strip that away and just go, what would be best for our fans in terms of what, what will our fans enjoy? When you get 19,000 people to fill up a downtown arena on a Sunday afternoon in October for an exhibition, that means there's, a, there's an appetite for that type of game. And so I wish that Kansas-Missouri played. It might not resonate nationally, but boy, will it resonate in those markets. I bet you I would get asked to come on in Kansas City uh, that, that, the week of that game every year to talk about Kansas and Missouri. I bet you radio stations would be talking about it all week long. I don't know if radio stations all week long are going to be talking about Kansas, Nebraska. But I know they'd be talking about Kansas, Missouri. And so it's just a win for the fan base, whether the fans know it or not. Because I know there's some Kansas fans that are like, F Missouri, I hear you. I hear you. But you would enjoy that game more than you would enjoy some of the other home and homes that are already scheduled by your school. And, again, I want to be clear, I don't mean this strictly as it pertains to Kansas-Missouri. Like any regional rivalry, that makes sense that the fans might enjoy is a a game worth worth playing, I believe. I agree. All right, let's transition. Let's talk Missouri specifically because we'll wrap this up here um, with – we are recording this before it's published, but if you're getting this right at the start after it hits iTunes or the site – I'm pretty certain my 1 to 351 list, annual list, uh, should be live here. So Missouri in general. So Parrish has not looked at the list. He knows 1 through 26 because 
as always, um, you know, it's Parrish's top 25 and one, but I consult with it. And a lot of those rankings uh, we largely agree with. So one through 26 is the same. I will mention a few teams that I've got just outside the 26 that I probably would have in my own personal top 25, so to speak. But as for Missouri, okay, they got a lot of freshman talent in, uh, you know, Backcourt has got some question marks, but is halfway decent. Obviously, after the way Missouri looked in that exhibition against Kansas, uh, defensively was uh, a big-time leap. Granted, also was an exhibition, but, you know, they looked much better. So my question to you is, and then if you've got a certain amount of teams you want to guess or ask me about, we can do that. But I specifically wanted to toss first to you, where do you think I have Missouri on my list? Or, and where would you have them, I guess? Well, it's hard to say where I would have them without, like, actually sitting down and doing it. But somewhere in the 40s makes sense to me. Okay. I actually have them number 37, but the, the fact that you say 40s. Um, I was going to say 40. I was going to say 40. Yeah. There are a lot of – there. I've got seven SEC teams in my top 46, Vanderbilt being number 46. I put Missouri 37, which is in that range that they should be in that large team when you consider how many at-large bids there are and then how many major conference teams ranked above them will get the auto bid. So Missouri fans, yes, you should be expecting an NCAA tournament bid this season. I think 37 is about right. I would rank the Tigers in my top five most interesting – not necessarily mysterious. Yeah, there's an element of that anytime you have freshmen coming in, but we know how awesome Michael Porter is. Uh, but among teams that are not in the top ten that you want to see automatically, well, I would easily rank Missouri a top five team I want to watch this season. Uh, let me say this about Missouri, because um, every time I republish the top 25 and one and it doesn't have Missouri in it, they at least a few Missouri fans flip out and they want to – Ask me, if do, do you realize who Michael Porter Jr. is? Yes, I do. He's awesome. I've been saying he's awesome forever. I'd have hired his dad. If I were a college basketball coach, I'd have hired his mom. I'd have hired anybody related to him that it took to hire to get him on campus. He is terrific. I will say this. Sometimes people think that when you sign a top five recruiting class, you're going to be awesome. And that's not always the case. When you sign a top ten recruiting class, you're going to be great. And that's not always the case because – um, though the, the recruiting rankings do go one, two, three, four, five. So, uh, so, so five is pretty close to two. Five usually in team recruiting rankings ain't anywhere close to two. Because what one usually is, is a recruiting class filled with lottery picks. And what two usually is, and by the way, one and two is Kentucky and Duke in some order every year. Duke and Kentucky, yeah. It is possible to win at a significant level in college basketball with all freshmen or with a really young team, if your freshmen are lottery picks, Malik Monk and De'Aaron Fox, Jason Tatum and, and you know, that, that entire group of guys. Like, that's, that's when you're good with young people, when your young people are first-round draft pick, one-and-done guys. But just look at the 2016 team rankings, which means – uh, high school seniors who became college freshmen last year. Top 10 classes in America, four of them. Four top 10 classes for teams. Those teams didn't make the NCAA tournament last season. NC State had the number five recruiting class in the country heading into last season. Didn't sniff the NCAA tournament. Texas, number six class in America. Didn't sniff the NCAA tournament. Connecticut, number eight class in America. Didn't sniff the NCAA tournament. Mississippi State, Number 10 class in America, didn't, didn't sniff the NCAA tournament. Auburn was 12, did not make the NCAA tournament. So four of the top 12 classes in America heading into last season did not make the NCAA tournament. So, yeah, Missouri's got a top four class, 
And I do think Missouri's going to make the NCAA tournament. But the idea that it's easy to just throw three freshmen into your starting lineup, which might be what they're doing, and go win at a significant level in a Power 5 conference, it's not easy. It's possible. And I do think Missouri's going to be good. But um, it is completely sensible slash logical to keep Missouri out of a top 25 and one right now, I think, yeah, somewhere around 40 is about where I'd have them in the preseason. And I will be happy to be surprised if they look like a top 10 team in January. All right. uh, Before we get to teams, you might have questions or guesses on the only team that's not in our top 25 and one that if I was building it, I would definitively have, and I'd probably have this team. between. Let Let me see if I can guess it. Okay. Seton Hall. No, but they're close. Um, it's Texas A&M who I have 27, and I got if I put them in, I got to take someone out. I would take Bama out only because I want to see like John Petty, Colin Sexton, really good players. They got some solid sophomores back. They can definitely be a top 20 team. I have more confidence in what I know from A&M right now than Bama. That'd be the only one. Seton Hall is my number 28 team. I like everyone else we have in our top 25 and one. If forced, I think I would remove. If forced, I'm ah, man. It's such a tough call. I guess Providence maybe, and they're 26. But I'll, I ultimately, if you maybe choose between the two, I actually like Providence just a little bit more. But Seton Hall, Angel Delgado's back. Dean Carrington's really good. I got them 28. And then let me just round out the top 30. Pro- Providence, by the way, is just me touching, Ed, uh, trusting Ed Cooley. Yeah, and well, also like I, th- I'm, I, th- I think I was about to say touching Ed Cooley. I've never touched I, Ed Cooley. Not in, not, not, just, not in any sort of questionable way. Past that, but you wanted to turn around on it, so that's totally fine. Um, I'm way in on Kyron Cartwright as a point guard, so I'm I'm totally cool with them being in our rankings. Filling out the top 30, I have Seton Hall 28. I have UCF 29. Uh, the American in general is going to be much better this season, not just because Wichita State comes in as a nearly universally regarded preseason top 10 type team, but a lot of teams are just going to be better because they're going to be healthier and they bring really good players back. Uh, so I think UCF, which was an NIT Final Four team last season, uh, really solid defensively, 29. And then I actually, I think I'm higher on this team than most. I've got the Terrapins at 30, Maryland, predominantly similar to how Michigan State has such a solid sophomore class. And there's a few teams out there that have really good returning sophomores. They had really good, nice freshmen. Everyone came back. I'm, I'm a big-time believer, and as we talk about our top 101, you know, between Kevin Herter, Justin Jackson, Anthony Cowan, I don't think we're going to be able to get all three of those guys on the list. We probably got to get two of those because I think they're all fantastic and they're really, really close in talent level. So that's my top 30, but uh, throw it at me. Any any questions on teams or guesses on teams? Uh, I, I, you know, Let's have a little bit of fun here while listeners uh, get a little bit of the list revealed to them as well. Well, obviously because of where I live, there's an interest in where you had the University of Memphis because the Ken Palm ratings came out on Sunday and Memphis was 132. So where do you have Memphis? Okay, and <laughs> that's too funny. Uh, I, I vow that I did not adjust this list after the Pomeroy rankings came out. So coincidentally, I have Memphis at 133. And by the way, actually, that is the one ranking that GP did know for full disclosure because uh, he did ask me this prior to the podcast. If it wasn't for Tubby Smith, if you took this roster and just inserted, you know, average college coach, I'd probably have Memphis around 175, 180. Um, but Tubby Smith is, is a solid coach. Um, you had mentioned that the schedule is manageable, but you know this is not a good Memphis team whatsoever. Uh, the AAC will be up, but Memphis will be down. I do not expect the Tigers to finish in the top seven or even the top eight in that conference. So they are one of a number of teams. And since I'm, you know, I would I'm hitting... I would assume this 
No school that's been to the Final Four in the past decade is anywhere close to as low as where you have the University of Memphis. Uh, ooh. Um, in the, if you say decade, you're right, because technically it's been more than a decade since Georgetown went, and they are 120. Um, I, Jesse Govin's a really good player. Uh, the rest of the roster I'm not sold on. Um, I've got, I think the Hoyas are going to be the worst team in the Big East. Um, DePaul was picked last by the coaches, but I think Georgetown, I got to see it. Maybe I'm going to be way wrong. Patrick Ewing's going to step in, be an awesome coach. Their non-conference schedule is by the way, a joke. And when I do these rankings, I do not forecast what schedule you are playing against. It is just purely <laughs> as scientifically <laughs> accurate as possibly can be just which team I think is going to be better this year. And Georgetown's probably going to be like a two loss team when it gets to Big East play. Cause it's non-con is such a joke. They pulled out of the PK 80, which is a terrible call. Um, but I don't think this team's going to win more than two games in the Big East. So I've got them 120, which might even be a little bit high. The other teams that are traditionally much higher that I have low, relatively speaking, this year, Ohio State, I've got at 97. Uh, Thad Mata's probably got the worst backcourt in the Big Ten. I mean, Thad Mata. Chris Holtman. Well, Thad Mata did, and now Chris Holtman does. <laughs> I've got 97 at the Buckeyes there. That might even be a smidge high. Um, I've got Syracuse at 87. Love Tyus Battle. He he better be on our top 100 list. I think he's a great player. But not a lot else around them. There's Torian Thompson, the Orange. I don't think we'll, uh, we'll sniff the NCAA tournament, and they could, really could struggle to even make the NIT. And then there was one more traditionally, like, relatively decent team that's, uh, that's pretty far down. Um, can't remember. I got Pitt at 153. They're pretty low. I got Cal, who's got a new coach, at 163. And then I've got, I think the lowest rated team I have from a Power 5 conference is Washington State. I've got them at 201. But what else have you got for me? Who's the worst team in America? Oh, okay. Um, Alabama A&M. I, all right, let's see. Yeah, that's their 351. Once you, GP, I mean, this list is, it is a beast and a bitch, and it is it is fun but grueling to do. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, glad, a, I'm glad this is one of those things where you just decided to do it by yourself. Yeah, exactly. But I don't want to be involved in this. I, between research, phone calls, text, because I basically try and get multiple coaches in every league just so I don't rank. God forbid I rank someone 287 when they really should be like 160. You know what I'm saying? I can't have that on my conscience here. So, uh, so, but once I honestly like it's going to sound ridiculous, but like once I hit like that 272, 273 range GP, it gets brutal and really hard. And then when you're in the final 15, you just feel terrible because, you know, like inevitably, like the numbers don't lie. Like the MIAC and SWAC, the bottom five, six teams in those leagues are always going to be among the, the 20 worst teams in college basketball. Um, so Alabama A&M, you know, they're preceded by North Carolina A&T, Mississippi Valley State, Florida A&M, Bethune-Cookman, uh, and the Presbyterian, I think, is the lowest rated team, not from a MIAC or a SWAC conference there. Um, let me toss a few at you here before we wrap up this podcast. because mm-hmm. I got I got plenty to say here. Mm-hmm. Um, how about this? And you swear you, you so you swear you haven't seen the list, right? I swear on all of my children. Technically, sneak through the back door of our publishing system and check it out there. OK, so I, which, I do not care that much. OK, well, I'm. I'm great and grateful for having your endorsement with that um <laughs> which uh which team from a single bid league mm-hmm. and you know the wcc mountain west a10 those are multi-bid leagues in my opinion so we got 10 multi-bid leagues and the other 21 are single bid leagues so which team from a single bid league do you think is most highly rated in this list mm, single bid league 
You said Mountain West is a multi bid league. Yeah, I would. I would. Let's just let's call that a, a multi bid league. Yeah. Data uh, from the Mountain West is fortieth. Charleston. Oh, that's a good guess. They are the second highest uh, team. They are forty-eight. So I've got, if you want to call, you know, two two squads from single bid leagues are in the top fifty. I think Oakland is going to be the best team. Ah, yeah. Okay. How could I forget about Greg yeah, Campbell's they, team? They're loaded, man. They're, I got them 45th. And, you know, I, I wanted to go maybe a little bit higher. But, again, just looking at some of the other teams that are above them, I just, you know, I've got Michigan 44. I think I'm lower on Michigan than a lot of people. In fact, I think a lot of people think Michigan will be better than Maryland, and I've got them separated by 14 spots there. But Oakland's going to be really good. Charleston's a great call, GP. I think a, a lot of people aren't aware of how good that team's going to be. It's going to be by far the best team in the CAA. Um, other teams from single bid leagues that I have high, I have Missouri State 58, Wichita State leaves the Valley. Missouri State uh, is absolutely expected to be, if healthy, uh, the definitive best team in the Valley. Number two will not be Illinois State, which was so good last year. It lost too much, but Loyola of Chicago, and I've got them a little bit further down the list at 74. The highest rated team from the Ivy, I had Yale at 73. Bucknell, 72 out of the Patriot League. Bucknell's got, similar to Oakland in that it's got so many really good players uh, versus everyone else in the rest of the league. Bucknell should win the Patriot League. And then I want to give a shout-out here to, to Kermit Davis, who, similar to Greg Campy, like if Kermit Davis at Middle Tennessee, um, if they make the NCAA tournament again, both of those guys are, are relatively getting up there in age. Campy's a little bit older than Davis, but... Um, if there's a bigger job that opens, I think both those guys are, are deserving of a shot there uh, because Davis should go to uh, the NCAAs three seasons in a row. He's got Giddy Potts, one of the best names in college basketball. So I've got the Blue Raiders at uh, at 65. I'm not ready to wrap up this podcast. I want a few more. I want a few more inquisitions from you. So toss me toss me something. Mm. Who, okay, what team do you project to have the biggest drop? Like, okay, this is what they were last year, but boy, they're falling, they're falling real, real bad. GP, you're a pro. You know that. That's I, a great question thank there. Thank you. So, so versus what they were at the end of last season versus what they'll be this season. Um, this team isn't the definitive answer uh, because they didn't make the tournament, but I do, I do want to start by saying I'm probably going to be wrong at having Indiana 75th. I, I think Archie has publicly not – really built this team up too much because I think there's a uh, Robert Johnson's a good player there's a lot of unknowns there so I I just I sold a little bit on IU if it, honestly if Archie if we get to the end of the year and Indiana's like a three seed in the NIT I won't be shocked but I just want to see what they what they can do overall I think the biggest drop is if you're looking at the NCAA tournament included I've got South Carolina at that, 80 yeah if you include the NCAA tournaments clearly South Carolina yeah South Carolina's at 81 in part because I know that Sundarius Thornhill wasn't a star, but, you know. And, CBS and, Sports first team All-American. Exactly. And and in talking to coaches in amid the Final Four and, and doing, you know, you know reporting on some scouting stuff, there was definitely a feeling that in terms of value, ability offensively and defensively, like Sundarius Thornhill was the best player both ends of the floor in all of college basketball last season. And then they lose Dozier as well, uh, who's earning pro money now. So losing that – uh, Dwayne Notice was a solid role player. Uh, they're just going to take a, a huge drop. So if you're including that, I think they're the biggest drop. Let me bring up last year's Ken Palm ratings real quick here to see who was ranked high that I know of that I dropped pretty pretty low, relatively speaking. Because a lot of those teams that were good are still up there. Like, all right, so Gonzaga, here was the top 10 
at the end of the tournament. So Zaganova, Carolina, Kentucky, Florida, Kansas, West Virginia, Wichita State, Louisville. Oregon's a, another Final Four team I don't have uh, in the top 30. I've got Oregon at 34. they got some transfers coming in. they got a really good freshman named Troy Brown. Uh, they're a relatively big drop. How about this? How about two teams uh, with two states with a Tony Bennett connection? So Wisconsin, I have a 35, which is aberrational to say the least, but might even be too high, GP. Like Ethan Happ's going to be a top 10 player in college basketball, but there are so many unknown pieces around him. And yet at the same time, Wisconsin for the past 16 years has been top four in the Big Ten. So I just went 35th. I figured that's relatively fair. And then I've got Virginia 38 because I don't love the roster. Now, granted, Doni Bennett doesn't need an outstanding roster to win. So watch him prove me wrong. And then we're going to look up in the end of December. and Virginia is going to be ranked in the top 20, and I'll be, I'll be a, a big-time miss on that. Um, so those are two that are normally is pretty— I, Is Iowa State a dropper? Oh, that's a great call. Yeah, Iowa State's a huge dropper. I actually think Iowa State's going to finish last— I think they would be last in the Big 12, man. They lost so many seniors. And Monte Morris was really, over the past two seasons, I think a top five co- uh, point guard in college basketball. So the Cyclones I have at, uh, what, 100 or 101 at this point, I think. Um, so, yeah, they're a significant drop, in my opinion. Um, and, and it's then, unusual because that program's been so good under Hoiberg and now prone. But oh, And I'll, I'll let you interject here. But real quick, with the exception of really a handful of programs, and I mean a handful of Every single program in college basketball is vulnerable to a big-time step-back season, whether it's because of roster or coaching change. Even Kentucky proved that with Gillespie, because unless you're, you're Duke, Gonzaga, I mean, even Carolina in the Doherty years experienced this. So Iowa State, your time is, has come. A year from now, you should be better. Go ahead. Um, you mentioned a drop because of coaching changes. Top of the A-10 is a perfect example of that, right? Dayton, uh, Dayton yeah, loses Dayton. Archie, VCU. Loses yes. will, and so those two programs, which were both, um, you know, NCAA tournament teams, top fifty Ken Palm. I'd be surprised if either are top fifty Ken Palm this year. Agreed. I have VCU fifty-two. They're still uh, Mike Rose is a solid coach. I think there's still enough back. Tillman's a good player. Um, VCU at fifty-two, uh, but Dayton's a huge, huge drop um, down to I think one hundred and five on my list. Uh, so with that, uh, and. Dayton's going to be back. I mean, Anthony Grant, who's alum previously at Bama and was also coincidentally at VCU. Um, there's certainly some drops there. I'll flip this on you, GP. Uh, a couple programs that are ranked high uh, that we haven't already mentioned that were either low last year or are traditionally much lower. Uh, St. Bonaventure, I have at 41. Dude, Jalen Adams is... I was watching... I pulled a, a Sam Vecini. I was watching just some, some video and tape a couple weeks ago. This dude is just freaking awesome, man. I mean, he's uh, honestly, I think Jalen Adams is good enough where he could be freaking fantastic in the tournament and single-handedly get the Bonnies to the Sweet 16. Like, I think he's that talented point guard. And by the way, Matt Mobley in the backcourt as well. That's the best backcourt in the A-10. I would rank that backcourt easily, easily top six or seven in all of college basketball. I think they're that good. Um, I might even have Bonna too low a little bit there. I got them at 41. Uh, other ones, how about Oklahoma with a huge bounce back season? I got them at 51. Trey Young, GP, you're going to love this. <laughs> I'm not letting you buy all the Trey Young stock because I can see this dude like jacking up Steph Curry bombs uh, right away and averaging like 21 for the Sooners by the start of December. And uh, I think he is going to help them big time. I don't think the Sooners are quite an NCAA tournament team, but I think they're going to be top six in the Big 12. 
then it should make a pretty a pretty big jump up. And then anyone else that's uh, – I mean, UConn's going to be better than last year, I think. We've uh, And then Virginia Tech, I've got 33. Um, and TCU at 32. I think Buzz has got a really solid team. Chris Clark is an awesome player. Um, I don't know how many people will think Virginia Tech is going to be better than Virginia, but I am one of them. Um, and, you know, made the tournament last year. I think they're going to make it with some ease this season. TCU was brings back everyone of consequence. Jalen Fisher, their, uh, their standout player, tore his meniscus, but I think he is scheduled to return in time. This team won... 23 or 24 games last season they won the nit so i think they roar back and they could be a top three team in the big 12 so those are a few unconventionally good teams that i think are going to be much better this season but uh but yeah man dude i am gp i am so freaking ready for games to start i mean i was i was writing this list i'm getting pumped about like colgate at 206 northern illinois 246 hey you want me to go deep right now in radford at 268 i'll do it for you Maybe even a little uh, Binghamton action, three eleven. I mean, we can keep going, but nah, I know we can. Nah, that uh, <laughs> I, I, I I can't fake uh, enthusiasm about three eleven. But um, I am ready for the games. Like I got my my early season schedule. Like I, I got flights booked. I'm ready to roll. I'm going to be uh, in studio in New York for uh, that opening weekend, and then headed to the Champions Classic in Chicago, and then headed to the PK80 out in Portland. You'll be there as well. And so, um, yeah, man, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm tired of talking about. What I think is going to happen, I'm ready to talk about things that are actually happening. So it'll be uh, it'll be fun, and it'll be here before too long. Remember, uh, you can subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast via iTunes. So please do that. Um, it'd be a big help to us. Uh, we'd appreciate it. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry, MF, and Teagle. We will talk to you again later, uh, uh, later next week. Till then, take care.